This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the BCHA or its board of directors. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. I'm not speaking on the association's behalf. I just wanted to make that clear. Earlier today, when I was thinking about what I've got here and all of that, I was trying to come up with an image that I thought would kind of express where I see us now, us as a society. And I came up with the image that we're in this swamp. It's about knee high. It can't be any higher because I can't swim, so I fall over. It's higher than knee high. But it's about up to here. And it's sweet, sticky, gooey, and hard to walk through. The only way out of this swamp is over there somewhere, where there is something like a pier. And that is labeled reason, logic, and science. We're in the swamp. I'm hoping we'll get over there to reason, logic, and science. That's my aim. Now, you may not all agree with me, but... That's okay. Political correctness definition. I'm going to use PC throughout the talk instead of saying political correctness, correctness all the time. It's a noun defined as the avoidance, often considered as taken to extremes, of forms of expression or action that are perceived to exclude, marginalize, or insult groups of people who are socially disadvantaged or discriminated against. I've been interested in this topic for a long time. And I've been wanting to present it for some time as well. But it's a jungle out there when you start looking up political correctness and where it comes from and what it means and all the different descriptions you can run into along the way. Descriptions like social justice warriors, liberals, regressive left, cultural Marxism, identity politics, etc., etc., etc. And when I started out, I thought... Maybe I get into some of these definitions, and then I realized all that was was a distraction. We can get arguing about what they mean, and everyone will have a different idea, because it depends on who's using them, in what context, etc. There's no point to talking about them at this point for me. I made lots of notes, but I watched lots of YouTubes, and after a while, I thought, this isn't helping. <laughs> This isn't helping. So I changed direction actually on Friday. And this is why I'm going to have to read some of it, okay? So what I'm presenting is where we are at now. It's deliberately simplified. Do I think there's some devious plot or conspiracy to undermine our society and turn it into something else? No, I don't think so. How we got here is important. But what is more important is to challenge the current PC climate which stifles free inquiry and limits our ability to ask necessary questions. And we need to be able to do that. Right now, we are in an emotional climate where post-truth seems to be more of a reality. And I, I think we mostly know what that means, but I'm going to read the definition relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion 
that appeals to emotion and personal belief. That is what post-truth is. And I think where we fall on that dividing line is very, very important. Now, if we stick with the post-truth era, one, we, we lose all of our ability to, where we can criticize and question what's happening without being labeled as racist, uncaring, anti-immigration. Name any number of things that we're not allowed to talk about anymore for fear of hurting somebody. But if we continue on this path, we're going to lose our right to free speech and free inquiry. Now, to illustrate the state of current PC in Canada, I'm going to be using contemporary articles that I picked up, and it wasn't hard to do, in newspapers, um, in print media, not online. Mostly at McLean's and the Vancouver Sun, sources like that. In August 2016, an Angus Reid poll asked the questions in Canada, and this, I'm relating this primarily to Canada. If political correctness, the avoidance of certain words or actions, had gone too far? And I think the responses were very interesting. 79% of people said yes, it had gone too far. 82% of those over age 55 agreed. 75% of those age 35 to 45 agreed. 67% age 18 to 34 agreed. I think the numbers are very interesting because it helps us to understand the thinking of different age groups. Older parts of the Canadian society, which I am one and many of us are, we remember a time when, when it was, things were less divisive. And we saw ourselves, I think, as more united with, with generally interest in common. The very youngest group have grown up in a politically correct climate. They're used to this non-questioning. They're used to the emotional responses. And it seems like ever smaller segments of society are clamoring not just to be heard, but to claim special consideration because of real or perceived wrongs, no matter how tiny that segment of the population is. And I don't want to imply in any way here that we want, I want to return to the good old days. They looked good on the surface, they weren't so good in many other ways. And this is not an appeal to return to some mythical past. It said that the society was different then. There was less noise. There was less going on. There was less awareness because the media wasn't always in our face the way it is now. And then beginning in the 60s and, and early 70s, we started to become more aware of what was going on in the world, partly because of the Vietnam War and the controversy that raised, even in Canada, because we were welcoming the draft dodgers. And certainly the civil rights movement in the U.S. had a large impact on our society as well as in the U.S. And it seemed like we were moving toward a new era of openness, of awareness of disadvantaged groups in the society, and a willingness to do something about it. And in Canada, where there were three significant movements in that direction. In 1968, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, who was then the uh, Justice Minister and the Lester Pearson government introduced the Criminal Law Amendment Act of 1968-69. This bill, in Trudeau's words, is bringing the laws of the land up to contemporary society. Included in the bill were changes in abortion, which was no longer to be considered illegal in certain circumstances. Birth control, no longer to be considered illegal, and it had been, although it had been 
not obeyed for a long time, it nevertheless was the law of the land until 1968, not that long ago. And the third was that the recognition of homosexuals was decriminalized. This was a very important step for a large number of people. And it was no longer to describe homosexuals as fairies, fags, and other terms. We even brought in hate speech legislation and other terms, derision like nigger and kike and pappy and so on, were now being discouraged rather than accepted. 1968 is not that long ago, at least to me. And probably many of us in here. <laughs> then in 1971, the federal government, and Trudeau was then the prime minister, declared the commitment to the principle of multiculturalism and in so doing formalized a policy to promote and protect diversity, recognize the rights of Aboriginal people, and support the use of Canada's two official languages. The third important stream at this time was the rise of feminism and women's studies departments in universities. Now, one would think that these social movements would make it more tolerant and open society. And for a while it did, for a number of years it did. There's a willingness for us to listen to other points of views and to talk about different issues. But then, starting in the early 90s, early to middle 90s, that started to change. And it, PC originally was seen as a bit of a joke. We used to joke about, oh, you're so politically correct. Um, but then it became a more serious issue. And the avoidance of certain words or actions and any questioning of any part of society and the concerns people had about changes became taboo. We could no longer talk about them. We can no longer raise important questions out of fear that doing so would upset or add to the pain of a segment of society that we or they see as disadvantaged in any way. Where did that ideology come from? What supports it? What role do universities play in this, if any, at all? Those are some of the things I'm going to be talking about. This is the part I had some difficulty with because while I'm really trying to be honest and forthright, some things can be very easily misunderstood, and I don't want to be misunderstood here. But I think some of the problem is that we, and I'm speaking as the white majority, are so afraid of upsetting somebody that we don't even defend what we think might be our rights. And I think we do that when we look back in history and see the obvious discrimination that was carried out. Now we're trying to backpedal and say, sorry, 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 all the time. Sorry, I'm not going to raise that issue again. I'm sorry for the past. I think it's put us in a very dangerous position. Hugh Aldo Sanders didn't talk about that particularly when he was here a few weeks ago, because when he raised it a year ago, he got so much blowback from people when he questioned multiculturalism and what that has done in Canada, where we now treat every group um, as special with special consideration, and we, we don't we don't really insist that they come up, become a part of the general society. 
because we're so afraid of offense. And I think we're a better and richer country because we are a multicultural country. Nevertheless, there are things that we need to look at. And this is particularly true when it comes to issues of the Aboriginal population. This is what we're really very upsetting. And here's one example. This is from McLean's on December 19th. I didn't have to look far for my examples. They're out, they're out there everywhere. You just have to be aware of them. And if you're aware, then you see them. This is about from a column by Scott Gilmore. He gives a brief, sympathetic overview of the realities and difficulties the Indigenous people of Canada face. Infant mortality, sexual assault, school dropout, poor pay, incarceration, murder. The deck is stacked against them from birth. All of that is well known, and I'm sure we would all agree with it. He goes on then to point out that disconnected, unhealthy, and poor communities have much higher rates of violence. Many indigenous communities are all of three of these. That is part of the problem. It is important to confront the fact that indigenous men are more likely to be violent. He quotes new numbers from Stats Canada. Indigenous people are six times more likely to be the victim of murder. They're eight times more likely to be a murderer. Of the solved murders of Aboriginal women, 70% were committed by Aboriginal men. The response was furious indignation on the part of much, much of the Aboriginal community and some members of Parliament. They did not want to go there. They did not want to look at that. If we can't look at issues like this, we cannot resolve them. I think most of us would agree that many First Nations are situated in isolated communities where they don't have access to fresh water, where there's no road access, where there's no jobs, where everybody's poor. There's alcoholism, there's sexual abuse, and we can't all bl blame all of that on the residential schools. Some of it, yes, but we aren't responsible. I'm not responsible for the residential schools and neither is anybody here. That legislation came in long before we were born. I think in order to look at these issues, we have to be able to talk about them. Now, these are emotional reactions that go on, probably made with good intentions, out of fear of not further hurting or harming a disadvantaged population. And I think, you know, we have a, most of us have a feeling of we don't, we don't want to upset anybody. But what does that mean in real terms? Compassion is a feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow for another who is stricken by misfortune, accompanied by a strong desire to alleviate the suffering. Now, this is an important point, alleviate the suffering. That can lead to too much care and not enough reality. Not allowing someone to become independent, prompting them instead to want more more compassion, more care, more sympathy. It saves people or a group from facing the reality and going through the pain that is necessary for growth. I'm also a former social worker uh, doing individual group and family counseling. And you, these are important tenets when you're in that, in that profession. 
People have pain. Avoiding pain does not cure the problem. And I think that the reactions of particularly members of Parliament were out of compassion. Let's not cause any more pain. But that's not only unrealistic. It can also be patronizing, leading to the bigotry of low expectations, where we assume that some of these people cannot face reality. Is that an honest way to deal with people? Doesn't that keep them as victims? I think it does. And it's something we have to take very, very seriously. There's also the matter of empowerment. Some people think that because a group is recognized, you have therefore empowered it. You haven't. Empowerment comes from within. Empowerment comes through the struggle and assuming your own power. It's not a gift. You don't give people empowerment. And to pretend to do so is to do them a big disservice. So less compassion and more facing of reality and dealing with it are what empowers. Both require a willingness to face pain, not just by the group or individual, but the person who's interacting with that group or individual. You have to have the strength to do that. And you have to work through it. Do otherwise is to create victims who are stuck being victims. And I think that's what's happening. There are many, there are other news stories as well. A lot of them now related to um, issues of gender and gender identity. That's one of the coming issues. And I'm going to be turning to that later. But I think when we pay too much attention to some of these, we create sort of a tyranny of the minorities where they become overpowerful and overwanting compensation and overdemanding. And that's not healthy either. And I think it's something we have to be aware of. There's another little point I want to bring in here, which is kind of funny, but not really. I don't know if you've noticed the TV ads recently. They no, we, no, we no longer own a pet. We are the pet parent. This is common terminology now. There are books written for pet parents, how to be a better pet parent. <laughs> Think about that terminology. I heard recently, in all seriousness, one trace of irony, a couple referred to their dog as their daughter. As their daughter. There is a movement, tiny right so far, to create animal rights equal to human rights. And I think it primarily refers to dogs, which Vancouver is full of people with dogs. Um, but this is the kind of direction we're heading in. Where is the logic in that? I think it's crazy <laughs> myself. But it's out there. There's a lawyer who does nothing but defend the legal rights of animals. A growing movement here. Now, some of you probably watched the tape by Dr. Jordan Peterson about the Andrew just the so-called debate, I'm going to call it a so-called debate, between Peterson and um, Mary Bryce, Dr. Mary Bryson at UBC uh, on the issue of gender and gender pronouns. 
I'm not going to get into the details about that, except to say the position of Bryson seems to be an illustration of where government regulations and law for every aspect of life, including language, is leading. Do we really want to live in that kind of society? I don't. I found Peterson's work really interesting on, on many, many levels. I listened to his two-and-a-half-hour interview on YouTube called New Bull Lake Interview, in which he goes into his personal history, his development as a thinker, his delving into just about anything you can mention. The history of societies, the nature of being human, sexuality, mythology, gods, what all these impacts have done for us to become the people we are now. And I think looking at our history and our historical development is very, very important. To ignore our history is not really to know where we're at now and to get confused, which is, I think, there's a lot of confusion and chaos right now in society. He has a number of uh, YouTubes on, uh, videos on YouTubes, and it debates with various people. In fact, I think it's today or yesterday he's debating Sam Harris on the, um, his argument is that tribalism, not religion, is a divisive factor. I think that would be an interesting uh, uh, debate. We'll probably see it here eventually. Peterson is also highly critical of how universities have become part of the problem. Administrations display what I can only call cowardice. Recent events at UBC, the unwillingness to deal with sexual abuse on campus, the resignation of a president, conflict within the board of directors and governors, and a seeming reluctance to take a stand on anything. This can be illustrated by a recent incident involving John Furlong. John Furlong, this one December 20th. These are recent examples I'm using. Former 2010 Olympic CEO and recipient of an honorary law degree from UBC had been invited to speak at a paid speaking appearance to raise funds for the scholarship for the university's varsity athletes. The invitation was soon withdrawn by UBC because there was internal controversy. The controversy came about because of a 2012 Georgia Strait article which claimed Furlong had physically and sexually abused Indigenous students years ago. The charges of abuse were all either dropped or found to be untrue. But such is the power of one complainant and the power of social media that a respected man who had been cleared of all charges was still being excoriated. Vancouver Sun, Wednesday, January 4th. UBC apologizes for furlong cancellation. While a modern university should neither court nor shy away from controversy, our decision-making should be the result of a robust, deliberative process. This is President Ono. Furlong accepted the apology, but he was not reinstated as a speaker. Then a few days later, January 9th, UBC shifts stance, welcomes Furlong. President Ono said that his decision to reverse course and reinvite Furlong was simply the right thing to do. 
Furlong will be the keynote speaker at the event. But this is not finished. This issue is not finished. Vancouver Sun, January 12th. UBC professor resigns the policy committee. Daniel Justice, a UBC English professor and Indigenous Studies chair, resigned because of the reinstatement of John Furlong. I want to remind you that John Furlong, this, his case went to the Supreme Court of BC and he was found innocent or not guilty. But some stories never die. Okay, so Daniel Justice re resigned because of the reinstatement of John Furlong. He did so on the grounds that it has silenced or erased the abuse <coughs> allegations of dozens of people from the Lake Bebbing First Nation. He doesn't accuse Furlong of doing these deeds, just that it's this cycle for the discussion. He, it's important to remember he didn't say Furlong was abusive, only that it would upset people in that area of the country, and that Ono had not responded to their concerns. Now, whether there were any concerns, I'm not sure. It seems that when the First Nation was asked about that, there was no strong, yes, we, we all wrote letters or anything. I'm not sure where that came from. And, he, and then President Ono at UBC replied that he is responding to all correspondence regarding the matter. The Lake Devine First Nations chief said that he is ready to host Furlong in Burns Lake if he wants to visit and clear the air. And I remind you again, Furlong was cleared of all charges by the Supreme Court, but the accusations remain alive. I don't think we've heard the last Now, universities on one campus want the statue of Sir John A. Macdonald removed on the grounds that he was a racist, which he was. He was a man of his times. He was responsible for largely for writing the Indian Act, which um, has been and should be discredited. Nevertheless, it's a part of our history. You don't erase history. To, to rewrite history leads to some kind of totalitarian regime where you only believe what's now, without any reference to the past and how we got to where we are. The university students will protest the appearance of any speaker they don't approve of. There's little tolerance for anything that might trigger them. Trigger meaning anything that might upset them or recall bad memories. Trigger warnings are now given routinely in universities when a supposedly difficult or sensitive topic to be discussed is to be discussed. Students are then free to leave the room. We mustn't challenge anybody. We must pay attention to their emotions, responding to their emotions, not to logic, not to reason, not in the interest of learning. Peterson, in his critique of university, mentions the humanities in particular, and the Ontario Institute of Studies and Education, OISE, which is a part of the University of Toronto, in particular, as complicit in the decline of universities being open to free and academic discourse. I'm going to be very critical of what the feminist movement has evolved into. So my personal history is relevant here. By feminism, I mean the movement to gain true equality rights for women. A seemingly small but really important 
initial feminist movement was introducing the term Ms, rejecting Mrs. And that was done because Mrs. clearly defined women as being the property and attached to a man, which had in fact been reality not that long ago. It might seem like a small point, but I think it's an important point. Okay, my personal history. I've been a feminist probably since, well, before I even knew the word feminism. I grew up in a very male society. And when I was a child, I was told not to throw a ball like a girl, not or, sorry, like a girl, but to do it like a boy, not to run like a girl, <coughs> run like a boy. And I soon figured out that to be male was to have privilege. I didn't want to be a boy, but I sure wanted the rights and privileges a boy had. I even went to the extent of trying to t tie a bar onto my girl's bike so I could throw my leg over like a boy and not ride like a girl. I asked for heavy, clunky Oxfords that I could wear to school so I could make a loud boy noise in the halls on the wooden floors. And I got my Oxfords. <laughs> Which, so I figured this stuff out pretty early on. I did get married young and, and had children. And when Betty Friedan's Feminist Mystique came out, my first thoughts were, at last, what I know to be true has been written about. And I no longer tell the world. In 1968, I enrolled at Simon Fraser as a mature student. In about 1970, a small group of us, and I was only a very minor part of the crew, were interested in women's rights and women's issues. There was no space on campus for us to meet. So we met in a Burnaby library, down the hill. I think it's the Wellington Library at that time with women from the community talk about these issues. Also, at the same time, I took part in the Marxist study group, also off campus, also for women. That small group became women's studies in, in, at Simon Fraser University, one of the first, I think, the first in Canada. In 1971, when I was still a student at Simon Fraser, I was a volunteer at the Crisis Center crisis center, and through that I became a volunteer and a founder of postpartum counseling, service for women suffering depression after the birth of a child. And this was a very feminist, we didn't think of it in those terms, really, a very feminist organization because what we did, we looked at women's reality, what their lives were like, all together, we weren't imposing anything. We learned from the women who were going through the Depression what happened to them and what helped. This was regarded with great suspicion by the medical, psychiatric, and even health, public health people. Public health nurses did not want to talk to women about postpartum depression in case they got it. That's how little trust there was at the time for women coming to their own conclusions and managing their own lives. We had no idea at the time how advanced we were in our thinking. We really didn't. We were just doing work that we thought was important. When I was invited to address Grand, grand Rounds at UBC, I knew that we'd make some kind of breakthrough. 
And then later in 1979, I spoke to a small segment of the Canadian Psychiatric Association when it was meeting in Vancouver. These were breakthroughs in a very important area for women. I want to say that that group was the first one, as far as I am aware, in the world. In fact, when I spoke at the psychiatric convention, I got a call from a medical journal in the U.S. I was so astonished they didn't write the name down, who wanted to use my an abstract of my talk for their journal. Of course, I said yes. <laughs> I have no I have no idea where that ended up. I also write a couple of articles for Canada's Mental Health on the topic of depression and child abuse. So my roots in feminism are deep. The women's studies that were introduced in the 70s, beginning in the 1970s, courses were designed to look at women's history, the role of the patriarchy, male dominance, and the writing of history, philosophy, and all of society from a male perspective. Dorothy Smith, a Marxist-influenced sociologist, became a prominent uh, feminist studies leader, first teaching at UBC and later at OISE, the Ontario Institute of Studies in Education. In that period, she developed a standpoint theory, a critique of male-dominated mainstream sociology. Standpoint therapy was used as a means to look at the position of women from their perspective, their standpoint. This is a valuable research tool. But the feminism of the early, and the feminism of the early women's studies departments worked toward establishing equal rights for, for women, equity feminism. The newer versions are an expression of gender feminism that sees everything as a social construct. And by social construct, I mean it's everything is decided by the society. Um, for example, uh, there's no more male and female. It depends on how the society views that. This is why gender issue is becoming a big one. And so, so social construct, such as biological differences of males and females, its mission is to right historical wrongs, moving feminism into theoretical and philosophical discourse, which have become, did become women and gender departments, which some still exist, but later they morphed into the Social Justice Department Institute at UBC, which looks at gender, race, sexuality, social justice, and critical, and there's also critical studies in sexuality at UBC. The University of Toronto, the home of Boise, also has social justice departments. Other universities here in the U.S. and elsewhere have developed similar departments. This is a long way from where feminism started out. As I said in the beginning, I don't believe there are conspiracies to undermine current society. I do think that viewing all of society through a lens that sees everything as a social construct and everything from an emotional perspective is a leap into an abyss where feelings trump science. Vancouver Sun, Wednesday, January 11th. The latest news from OISE is that the University of Toronto backs studies in anti-psychiatry. Bonnie Burstow is a professor in the, in, at OISE, and she has put up $50,000 of her own money and scholarship for the study of anti-psychiatry. 
she says, there is no evidence that psychological problems come from physical imbalances in the brain, and even less that antipsychotic drugs actually help people. Bristow has put up, as I said, $50,000 of her own money for this new scholarship. And the U of T went along with it in the name of academic freedom. Now, I think we can all agree that psychiatry needs a hard look. I know a little girl who at five was diagnosed with social anxiety disorder and is being given pills to combat, which is essentially shyness. I think the drug companies have a lot to answer for. And, and homosexuality used to be considered a psychiatric illness. We need some breaks here. I, you know, I really think we do. We need to look at this more. But to go to the direction of, and probably the drug companies have a lot to do with some of these designations because, I mean, they've got a lot of product to sell. Um, and it's also worth mentioning that a lot of people who, who don't respond or respond badly to these antipsychotic or other drugs, they're not prescribed by psychiatrists. It's the family doctor who's prescribing them. And with often very little value. Um, so there are definitely issues to be looked at in this regard. But really, there's no science to back up her claim. There is some pushback. Critics worry that the university is endorsing an anti-scientific intellectual exercise, a false attempt at balance. I look forward to seeing how this plays out. And just in conclusion here, the tentacles of political correctness, whose roots are based on emotion, not reason, has a wide and deep hold on where we and most of Western societies find ourselves now. The post-truth era is here. Thank you.